Hi, I'm Marcus Peter Rempel. And I'm Alana Lewandowski. Welcome to The Ferment. Something good is rising. James Allison is a Catholic theologian who has been profoundly influenced by the thought of René Girard, a big influence for us here at The Ferment. I first came across James Allison as a Girardian who was writing about LGBTQ issues. I picked up Allison's Faith Beyond Resentment in the hopes that it might help some of my queer friends find their way back to the church. I put it down having seen a way that my queer friends could help the church find its way back to God. Uh, James is brilliant. I have also learned that he is generous and kind. And I I first heard of James Allison um, when he was speaking at the Conspire Conference at the Center for Action and Contemplation, and I was watching it online up in Canada. So not long ago, but it was incredibly memorable. I had heard of Rene Girard for some time before that, and encountering his work just rocked my world. The influence of James Allison's work on René Girard reaches very far, probably more than he knows. And to my mind, because of James' remarkable way of pulling the anthropological elements out of biblical texts for us to examine them uh, for real, it, it, it feels, for me anyway, like I'm reading the text for the first time when I'm walking through it with James um, he's unlocked some of the mystique around Gerard's philosophical language and carried it further out to everyday ears like mine. Uh, James Allison's work is thoughtful, meticulous, enlightening, entertaining, and deeply perceptive. And so it is a sweet delight to have James Allison holding high the cross under the banner of rainbow love. In the name of all that is friendly and kind and generous here on The Ferment. James, how are you? I'm very well indeed, and I'm uh, not sure whether to hide under a hill with all that generosity with which you have spoken about me. <laughs> just soak it up. Just, just, just bathe in it. I'll bathe in it. I'll bathe in it, washed by the waves of Skype. <laughs> um, so... Uh, James, as an as an openly gay priest uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, how's that going these days? Well, um, you know, it's uh, in a sense it's much less of an issue than it was twenty uh, or thirty years ago, um, and it's now, I think, being being accepted less defensively uh, by the powers that be. So um yeah I mean I'm 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 fine I I have a very privileged position of being a kind of at the same time a, a non-person and really very mainstream both at the same time so <laughs> all I can say is at the moment I'm very happy with the with the situation as as regards my own place and I think that there's a lot to do with um uh with the the hierarchy gradually allowing people to speak in the first person because that's what's difficult the difficulty is not uh, is not homosexuality oh, per se it's 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 honesty it's first person narrative that's the problem huh hmm. i i understand james that your own uh that your non-person status as you put it is 
is perhaps in the process of being uh, reviewed, rehabilitated by Pope Francis. Is is there anything you can tell us about where where that conversation is at? Well, the um, uh, yeah, the request is formally in, and I have it on good authority that the dossier is being looked at. Um, and meanwhile, of course, I'm you know fine. I'm delighted if 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 the dossier has has been thought good enough to be looked at. That means that uh, uh, I'm not being treated as a as a complete reject by the system. So I'm very happy with that. And that's and that's just how there there is that's just how things grind along, I suppose. Yeah, you know, I make I make you know I made an appeal to the Pope. Uh, the letter was handed in, and now the uh, someone has got to go and find the the wretched dossier containing uh, all the stuff about me, and then they can work out what to do. But that you know, I, as as I understand it, the man is busy. He has other more important things to do. <laughs> Um, James, I'm I'm really struck that as a as a young gay priest, you wrote a doctoral dissertation uh, on, of all things, original sin. Mm-hmm. Um, at at a time when when many progressives were distancing themselves from the idea that there's something fundamentally broken about human beings, uh, I think at the time you were writing uh, was maybe around the time I was reading Matthew Fox's original blessing. And and especially, I mean, for the queer community, you know, the language of sin, you know, that was just such a crushing weight that they were finally finding the courage to throw off. And in that time, you wrote The Joy of Being Wrong, Original Sin Through Easter Eyes, which, by the way, I just think is is the best title ever for a work of theology, The Joy of Being Wrong. Um, but how, how did a theology of original sin uh, become a work of liberation for you and and not a tool of oppression um i mean i think that one of the first one of the first things about original sin is of course that it applies to everybody equally and mm. one of the things that people used to say with relation to gay and lesbian people is that um you know our tendency or whatever you like to call it our orientation was the sign of a particularly uh, drastic form of original sin. And that always seemed to me to be a nonsense, since the whole point of original sin is that it's something that everyone has equally. In fact, that's particularly its point, because it's precisely that that makes it impossible for us to judge each other. That you know, Jesus says it, Paul says it, James says it, time and time again, it's repeated you know, judge others uh, you, with with the judgment that you judge, you will be judged, uh, or worse to that effect. So that was that was one thing. I, I was determined to explore for myself and see whether this whole business of there being a particularly drastic sort of original sin was really true, which it isn't. But also, what Girard's thought enabled was to enable uh, us to keep alive a, a fairly drastic picture of the human condition one that's much less airy-fairy and rosy than we seem, so as to bring out the real possibility of the depth of our self-deception, but without casting us into the outer darkness of being, uh, what's the word, um, radically depraved, so that we can't ever know anything true about who we are. Um, we can only depend on, on the, the words of Scripture or something like that. 
no, the possibility of us learning who we are and us learning how to be less wrong and more truthful is a difficult one, but it's a real one. And I thought that that was so much richer than the various attempts to give rosy, rosy-coloured pictures of humans. You know, we're not so bad, really. We're all really, um, we all really get on well together, and uh, which is manifestly not true. And um, you know, even in the even in the eighties, it was beginning to become clear that that kind of discourse was uh, was uh, grinding down. And I think that ever since then, it's only become clearer quite how how. Uh, violent uh, a species we are and that we need a way to be able to talk realistically but self-critically about that and that's what the doctrine of original sin tries to be it's the realistic self-critical approach to being human that's made possible by us being forgiven could you just in a summary statement sort of state the what is what is our original sin well, that's it. I've just I've just stated it. <laughs> it's it like self deception, judgment of the other. Is that it, it, that that's your sense of that's the that's the nub of it? No, I think. Uh, it, and if I were asked to say it's the, I mean, there are so many. Um, well, there are so many approaches that one can make, but the the key approach is to remember that it's the perception that we're able to have of ourselves as the result of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Because of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, we're able to get a sense of what we as humans are supposed to be, which means that we get a sense of what we thought was natural but are now discovering to have been a, a failed or flawed way of being. So the doctrine of original sin is what I call the backward glance so the retrospective glance, as it were, as we look back at ourselves as far as, as Adam and say, oh my God, to think that we used to think that that was natural. And now we see that it's not natural. It's a, it's a defective way of being who we are really called to be. And we're in the process of being able to leave it behind, thank heavens, as we allow ourselves to undergo the critique which Jesus' cross puts before us. Uh, that's to add, you know, our violence, the violence with which we tend to put people in places like Jesus on the cross. Um, we're able to say, we don't need to do that any longer. And we're able to start standing up uh, without fear of death, and it's uh, the way it runs us. Um, so we're able to start to act justly because we don't care if it kills us and things like that. These are the kind of effects of the backward glance so as we are as we're becoming what we were always meant to be, we look back and we see what it is that we thought was normal but isn't. If that's the nub, uh, excuse my expressing it clumsily, but it's as you can see, uh, not particularly easy to <laughs> to formulate. James, if primal human togetherness is based on a lie that we belong together because we're better than, purer than, more civilized than those guys over there. Is it inevitable that those of us who come to recognize our sin and self-deceit at the foot of the cross will have a much stronger truth, but a much weaker togetherness? I'm thinking about my own generation's difficulty in forming spiritual community. We seem to have great BS detectors, but not a lot of social glue. 
Yeah, well, you're right. It's extremely difficult. I mean, if I can go back just to a very quick point, you talk about the primal, the primal energy. I just I want to be a little bit a little bit careful with that claim that the primal energy is the over against. I think that the primary uh, the primal energy is what we see when we see a, a horde of of chimpanzees or of bonobos or whichever our nearest cousins is. Um, temporarily at peace together. Uh, in other words, there is a primal sociality that is to do with being bodies that's basically good and that is absolutely part of what um, our being human is. And there's something about that that we've never completely lost, thank heavens, and that we can actually feel in our bodies when we get it right with others. But that the whole of that has been very seriously distorted by the way in which uh, that primal uh, simian group has learnt to forge its identity through over againstness. So I just want want to say it's not that the primal the primal thing isn't the over against the primal thing is togetherness is bodily togetherness. Um, mm. Cooperation, cooperation, and learning how to, you know, pick pick nits off each other, pick lice off each other, and all of that kind of stuff <laughs> that one sees. Um, so there is that. Yes, I mean, uh, uh, simian groups are constantly engaged in poli- low, low level or maybe even high level politicking. So there are, there are always threats of violence there, but there is nothing like the culturally distorted structure of violence with which we have. Uh, made it difficult for us to get back in contact with our togetherness, if you like. For us, uh, mm. for us, we are always having to learn what our instincts no longer tell us. If you if you know what I mean, we're having to learn through each other what our instincts no longer tell us. We've actually become strangers, strangers to ourselves. Uh, and I think that was the, drast- the drastic fruit of becoming human was actually finding ourselves strangers to ourselves and having to learn really what it is to be who we are. So when, when it comes, as you say, to modern generations um, and way down the line, as we begin to see, yes, there are certain ways of being together that are, that are quite wrong and that are disastrously wrong. Um, and what on earth does it look like actually to start to form an appropriate togetherness, which, as you say, is a, is a weaker form of togetherness. But that doesn't mean to say that it's uh, weak in any uh, it's weak in the sociological sense, not necessarily weak <laughs> in a what's the word a negative uh, a negative sense. It means that we're not that easily tipped into taking revenge on each other, but we do have to make that much more excess, uh, that much more effort to actually be for each other deliberately, because we don't have any natural way of fitting in that teaches us how to be for each other. And I think that that that's uh, what you describe is really huge, and it's huge but about community building, about relationship building. Uh, it's going to be true about every single marriage uh, that, that comes into being. It's going to be uh, a constant effort to create something that we are not sure what it is to be. It's no longer We can no longer allow ritual and, and tradition to just let us go with the flow and that's what people do. And when modern people do that, it very quickly comes unstuck. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. Uh, what what does catholicity mean to you? Oh. Well, universality. It's the 
It's the notion that ultimately there is no other over against whom any of us can legitimately really define ourselves. There's no wicked other out there. There's no other who isn't ultimately part of the same sign of togetherness. And therefore, of course, that all the fake others that we produce in order to make ourselves feel good or to win elections or whatever it is are uh, enemies of of Catholicity. They are teaching us how to be less than the whole of ourselves, which we can only be if if we learn from all the others who are around us. It's it's not that um, Mexicans or Muslims or whatever the, um, the the baddie du jour is are going to make me less something. Ultimately, it's only who I am through and with them that is going to make me who I really am. And that's terrifying. That recognizes, if you like, the uh, the instability of our being and the delicacy of learning how to uh, recognize others and therefore to receive who we are through them. Hmm. Well, speaking of receiving ourselves through others uh, and receiving others, uh, you're really living the life of an itinerant preacher, traveling wherever people are ready to receive the particular gospel that you have to preach, and and well outside of uh, institutional containers. Who, who do you see showing up at the places that you are gathering folks? Well, it varies. It varies very much um, from from country to country and from culture to culture. Obviously, uh, where wherever I go, whatever the 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 source of the meeting, I usually try at least to meet meet up with local LGBT uh, Catholics or ecumenical groups uh, if there are such groups there. So that's always actually a very encouraging sign because it's usually good to see people who are learning how to stand for themselves stand up for themselves, not be resentful, get on mm. with things. Mm. And at this stage, I've got a great deal of confidence about ways of doing things, which is rather wonderful to, to perceive. Then in other places, it's uh, quite a lot of, uh, I don't know how, how you, what the word, what the correct language is, but maybe post-evangelicals or uh, people from emergent church background that I know that used to be a kind of a buzzword I don't know whether it still is um, but but often people who are uh, have been brought up in quite oppressive and hardline evangelical backgrounds with doctrines such as a particularly narrow understanding of the atonement uh, that cause them real distress and yet at the same time are aware that so many of the liberal alternatives uh, which are on offer, throw out the, the baby with the bathwater. Mm, yeah. And I think that what they sense, what I sense, is that Jira offers us is a way to have the baby without the bathwater. <laughs> In other words, it's offering something that is as as rich, as as conservative, as meaningful, as, as heart-involving as their previous fundamentalist background, but without so much of the toxic... Mm. Uh, stuff around emotional blackmail uh, surrounding Jesus's death, and certainly without the the implicit or explicit uh, anti-Semitism, uh, anti mm-hmm. anti LGBT people, and from what we're seeing, particularly in the United States, the implicit white supremacist and and racist things that go, have gone along with that particular style of teaching. 
so the, those are those are two of the backgrounds and with uh Catholics as well who are fed up with really the slowness of the of the church to to move on on these important issues and who are uh, seeking encouragement just to make the thing work better given given the bishops that we've got hmm. i i want to ask you you've mentioned already uh you uh you, you were sort of struggling for language and i i think this is i struggle for language also to name a kind of uh there there is an there is a movement within the church that has seems to have a lot of energy but very little form uh in terms of being able to to put a, a label on it and uh i i was struck at a at a girardian conference in chicago uh the theology and peace conference that I mean, it was just such a hodgepodge of of Baptists and and Pentecostals and Catholics and mainline Protestants there. It's a wonderful um, group of people, isn't it? It's a really really splendid. Group. It is a, a wonderful group, and I, I was struck that no one there, there was just such a sense of recognizing one another in that circle, but nobody was saying, "Let's start a new Girardian denomination." Everyone was everyone was going home to wherever it was they were to to carry on and yeah I just the the emergent movement was a kind of it was one way to try and name and sort of put a label on a certain kind of movement that's happening but it, I I I learned recently that the the website uh, emergentvillage.com that used to be kind of the hub for for the big leaders and thinkers of that movement that's now a hipster furniture store oh, really? uh, <laughs> online <laughs> yeah uh so it's it's like the this thing it's it's such a slippery animal that the labels just keep sliding off and i just wonder if you have any thoughts about you know naming this phenomenon any 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 speculations about what it means uh, as it relates to the the thing we call the church? I mean, what I think it means is that we are finding something prior to uh, institutional renaming, which is discovering sisters and brothers, which is how across denominational boundaries I've started discovering people who I can recognize as sisters and brothers. And that seems to be actually to be part of the promise of the gospel. We're told that we'll have many of those and persecutions as well, from what I remember. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, huh. And that, uh, that that's what's special, is that you're able to discover people who have become strong trees in their own pools, as it were, or in their own oases. So they're quite recognizably leaders of, uh, or people who are within their um, denominations. But at the same time, they have become brothers and sisters in a far richer and more obvious way than would have been true, perhaps, where the first thing that you wanted to say is, is this person part of the same in-group as I? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, are, are we, do we belong to the same club? I, yeah, so I'm 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 always delighted by that. But as you say, it's, it's difficult to to name. But when you see it, you know it. And and I've I've really enjoyed that in in different places that I've been um, recently in, in Austin, Texas, or in Sydney, you know, Australia, or here in Madrid. You say, okay, yeah. <laughs> so this is this is what I'm part of, um, and that's good because that means that I hope we're beginning to. Not, um, you know, 500 years after the Reformation, 
were learning how to be uh, Protestants standing in place, as it were, rather than Protestants leaving uh, leaving the, the big church <laughs> by needing to be over against it. And that seems to be to be rather a good thing uh, to be not trying to found a new church over against the wicked old church, but say actually becoming a less wicked old me in the midst of this thoroughly mucky mm-hmm. thing is probably the, the best I can do as regards um, my protest and my becoming uh, uh, a witness to what it might be to be a son or daughter of God. Mm. Uh, James, uh, I, I've never seen a Catholic priest wield the Bible so openly. <laughs> you are a, a total gift uh, to all people who have been traumatized, but what I might call um, indelicate, indelicate Bible. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> was it the was it the work of Gerard who led you to look into these texts with such vigor, or were you always drawn? To scripture with that keen ability to perceive it, it's it's heartwarming, uh, it's heart wrenching, and so anthropological all at the same time. Um, well, let me answer the question. Before I uh, was reading Girard, I was not at all able uh, to approach the Bible in a positive way. It was a terribly difficult uh, book mm. for me emotionally, for reasons. To do mm. with, with family history and, and so on and so forth. So the freedom to read it, which came with Girard, was huge, really huge. So I would, mm. I would say, yes, um, uh, that it really is uh, uh, Girard who taught me how to read. But also, um, you know, after I discovered uh, Girard, um, the delight of discovering some of the modern studies that have shown just how much Semitic background there is to every one of those texts, Um, just how much rabbinic or Aramaic or Hebrew wit and sense of humor there is going on behind texts, which we normally read in a very flat way. Mm. And this was really, I I was taught by um, a now deceased, very distinguished, but very under-recognized, uh, Anglican exegete called uh, Duncan Durrett, D-E-R-R-E-T-T, whose you know huge, widespread writings over the Gospels are a mixture of fascinating, infuriating, too much, and wonderfully insightful. Um, but it's it's like being it's like being with a uh, an eccentric but amazingly productive grandparent. Um, <laughs> 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 keeps producing this weird stuff um uh and it meant that so much of what he was able to produce he he didn't know about uh, Girard initially i actually met him and told him about Girard and he then he then did look him up but his sense uh, direct sense of what's going on in the background to parables and uh, gospel texts because of his understanding of the uh, basically, the middle, the Middle Eastern world, the ancient Middle Eastern world. He was a professor of middle, uh, ancient Middle Eastern law before he was a New Testament scholar. Um, so his sense of, if you like, the ancient Middle Eastern bazaar gives a fantastic background, and it turns out to coincide beautifully with 
the uh, structure which Girard then makes available by his understanding of the undoing of the scapegoat mechanism. So once you get those mm. two together, I bake for a very rich stew. Mm. James, I want to ask you a question about about authority, and this goes back a little bit to the question about your non-person status in the Catholic Church. Despite that, uh, you you have become uh, a recognized authority, but through it seems like there's just a different way of of establishing authority. I think very much to do with the new technology of the internet, where instead of uh, sort of waiting anxiously from a letter from headquarters to to be recognized as a as a viable teacher or not. Um, there's this other process whereby one, through Facebook likes and iTunes reviews, etc., uh, becomes recognized uh, in this in this much more uh, amorphous and I, I think also more kind of market shaped uh, kind of world. I don't I, like I don't want to romanticize too much the the new way of making an end run around the old way of us establishing. Uh, authority. I, I just wonder if you have thoughts on what what the implications are for spiritual leadership of of these two different ways of recognizing leaders and and the way in which they complement but also kind of tug at each other. Hmm. Um. I mean, I I I don't recognize myself in in much of what you're saying. Um, but that's because I, I myself don't. I mean, I'm not. I'm not on Facebook personally. I understand that. Um, yeah. Uh, and it really because I'm too introverted. And uh, I tried opening a Facebook page for myself once, and I found it. There were so many questions about who you wanted to see you or not see you that I got frightened and ran away. Um, so I'm just not. I don't like all that exposure. So I'm I'm honestly not sure. I mean, for me, a really interesting theological and spiritual question is, well, no, I'm not 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 sure that that's the the question you're asking because you're you're really asking about how how someone can exercise spiritual authority through these media. Yeah, and 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 maybe maybe for you, Facebook hasn't been the way, but there is there is some kind of global network that has tapped into what James Allison has to offer. Uh, and that network exists rather independently. Well, not completely, but it, it has its kind of own way of operating that is outside of the traditional structures of church institutions. And which is, which is, yeah, which is, which is fine. But I wouldn't, I mean, I would hope that that doesn't make me into an authority because I'm, I'm fairly clearly not. I'm a person with my own points of view, and otherwise, often I'm just a silly old queen. But, um, we, <laughs> but, um, in as far as my writing makes sense, then it, you know, if I say something that's true, then it's because it's true, not because the one saying it has any authority. <laughs> that, that's the, uh, uh, that. I mean, there is a way, I mean, it is very sweet of you to say that you're not an authority, but I, I mean, as someone who is, just incredibly grateful to have received a kind review from James Allison on the back of my book and, and, you know, 
placed that fairly prominently in the advertising of that book, I know that there are people that see the name James Allison and they go, oh, this counts for something. Oh, well, I'm, I'm um, extremely glad. I'm extremely glad if that's the case. <laughs> it seems highly, it seems highly I'm, I'm so glad that those people have never met me because they wouldn't, they would surely, they would surely not think that was the case if they, if they, if they did. Um, but I, I think that there's, a, I mean, there's a, an issue, which I think is the real, a real issue here, which is not to do with my authority or anyone else's, but I think that the question of what it means to learn from Jesus, and so therefore, what does what does Jesus' teaching look like now? Um, mm. A previous generation would might have answered if they were Protestant. Well, it's perfectly clear; it's in the Bible. And a previous generation, <laughs> if they were Catholic, might have said it's perfectly clear; um, it's in the magisterium of the church. And you've just got to listen and obey. Um, yeah, yeah, and for for very good reasons, both of those uh, have broken down. Yeah. So that we're left with the same words uh, of the Bible and indeed with much the same ecclesiastical structure. But we're aware that none of them delivers Jesus teaching us by themselves. In other words, what does it mean to be undergoing being taught by Jesus, particularly when... Uh, it becomes quite clear that being taught by Jesus is sometimes sometimes leads us to take positions that appear to be against what the teaching structure of the church take uh, says. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or at least what and what traditional readings of Scripture have said. So you know that, that that for me that's a real question. That's that's what I'm hoping that I'm working on at the moment to try and work out what it actually means to be learning from Christ. You know, it says you have you have one master, the Christ. You are all brethren. Uh, you're not to call anyone father and all of that. That's what actually, how that fleshes out in practice. I think that that's really where we're all at at the moment, trying to work out, you know, who who is teaching us and how we can identify them and how we can hold fast to what is what is true and good and righteous and all, all of those things. At the same time uh, that we're taught by the same Jesus, words to the effect of um, you... You make void the word of God by holding on to the tradition of humans. In other words, th- there is a gap to be rediscovered by every generation between what seems to be from God but, but isn't really. That is something yeah. real to be discovered. But what's the shape of us undergoing that learning now? How can we work out what it is to be taught by Jesus? For me, that's what I'm hoping to be working on in my next piece of writing. But I and I wish I had a better answer for you. No, that's 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 already a that's a very helpful answer already. And and uh, do you want to say anything more right now about the the writing project? Is do you have a where's that at? Do you have a title? No, it's, it's full is of shame. That, I mean, it, I'm hoping to to write a, a, just a book the book that I've been wanting to write for a long time, but basically saying, listen, we've now got to the point where we can see perfectly straightforwardly how this development in matters LGBT is a perfectly straightforward organic growth of the Christian thing rather than being some kind of defect from it, defection from it. Mm-hmm. And just as to reassure some people, yeah. particularly often, you know, the parents of, of LGBT people who feel 
kind of left behind. Maybe they, their kids have been able to accept themselves fairly easily, but a previous generation isn't. And they're still a bit tortured by either old Bible readings or church pronouncements or, you know, backwards bishops and all that kind of thing. I'd say, actually, no, uh, there is something solid in what we have learned about being human here. And it's been learned according to a, uh, an undergoing uh, of the things of the Spirit that is clearly from God. And you can trace this out. Um, so that, that's, that's, what I, that's what I want to do. But part mm. of that means facing up to the question of, um, actually, most of us have learnt what this is, what is true in this sphere, in spite of, and not from, church. Mm. And how do we how do we flesh that out? Because it's a rather important thing that we recognise. Yeah. Uh, that. <laughs> One more sort of is a sort of a follow up question on on the authority question. I'll I'll begin with a little story. So uh, before my family and I moved out to the Bolsinger area where we live now, we were part of this ecumenical group uh, in Winnipeg that was called Grain of Wheat and uh, had a very flat kind of leadership structure. And and in that place, um, my wife, Jen, uh, was called to the role of, of leading communion uh, in the group with some regularity. Uh, and then when we moved out here... Um, the kind of most obvious church connection for us in this neighborhood happened to be an Anglican one, because uh, there was uh, a priest that we were friends with uh, already. Uh, and so we started hanging out with the Anglicans, and there, of course, uh, Father Jim was was always the one to preside uh, over communion. Except that when he began, he he uh, he died, and as he was as he was dying and, and ailing, the the church had had a practice of having lay folk. Uh, serve what they called reserve sacrament, which was elements that that Father mm-hmm. Jim had blessed already, and then we would we would still have Eucharist on a Sunday, even if if Jim couldn't make it, and and the bishop uh, ended up saying that he he disallowed that 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 was that was fine for bringing uh, the elements to to shut ins and so on, but not not for Sunday morning, and that and that really stuck in our uh, sort of my and Jen's. Anabaptist craw, um, and that's what I think sort of the moment when we figured out maybe that maybe we aren't, you know, can't quite be Anglicans, um, and and so anyway we were uh, we were sort of discussing this controversy in our local uh, a local group that gets together that we call Stitch and Bitch, which is um, it's it's kind of uh, our our local unofficial queer straight alliance group. <laughs> That happens to gather around uh, knitting and crocheting and other crafts. And what was interesting to me is this passionate argument broke out uh, among uh, our queer friends who have uh, all left the church. And and so there was, you know, there was this there's someone who's sort of a neo pagan who comes from a fairly high Anglican background. Uh, and then there's uh, some Buddhists that come from a, a, a United Church background, and and one side was was saying, well, you can't just have anybody serving communion, and and the other side was saying uh, with considerable vigor, well, if 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 you're saying it with sincerity and a prayerful heart, of course it's fine, and uh, it, they seem to care an awful lot about this uh, internal church uh, question, uh, so. My question is, James, what, uh, if you had been there, first of all, what, what handicraft would you have brought to Stitch and Bitch? Um, um, and, and, 
<laughs> and what and what would James Allison have said at that point? <laughs> oh, I'm, alas, I'm absolutely hopeless at handicrafts. So I'm honestly not sure. I would have probably brought a dustpan and brush to to do the cleaning afterwards, or perhaps a, a Hoover or what you call a vacuum cleaner <laughs> to do the to, to do the the cleaning. I think that would probably have been as as useful as I could have been under in, in Stitch and Rich. Um, as to uh, as to the the practice, I mean, I yeah, I'm very surprised that the Anglican bishop um, stopped the communion from the reserved sacrament. Um, I mean, there are many, many Catholic parishes throughout the world whose weekly weekly mass at, at this stage uh, is from the reserved sacrament, and that would be regarded as absolutely standard. Um, if sad, it's a sign of there not being enough priests, and there not being enough priests is a, yeah. is a, the, a sign of the failure of those who have the sacrament of orders to understand how they should spread their sacrament. Um but my, what I would say uh, is that if you find yourself in a group in which there is not an ordained person, then the baptized, if uh, the, the, the baptized faithful, uh, choose one. It's that simple. I mean, the baptism is a rite of ordination. That's what baptism is. Everyone is baptized into the one high priesthood of Christ at baptism. So we're all the high priest. Any one of us in principle can celebrate the Eucharist. And that's why we're all able to take part in the, when it, when it comes to the, you know, just before the, the words of consecration, we all sing the holy, holy, holy. Remember that the words, the holy, holy, holy was the sound of the angels in the sanctus sanctorum, in the holy, in the holiest of holy places. And only the high priest could enter into the holiest of holy places. So the presumption is that there are no laity in Christianity. There is only a high priesthood. <laughs> now, how those high priests appoint one amongst themselves to lead the service, to order the service, is going to depend, of course, on their denominational uh, background. And to their degree of contact with a bishop. If a bishop is halfway sensible, the bishop will help them uh, appoint uh, a sensible person <laughs> who uh, seems to the bishop and to the community uh, to be the kind of person who will lead to an ordered, a properly ordered worship. But if the if the bishop either refuses or isn't interested or you know has got a very restrictive notion of who the bishop might uh, ordain, which merely means a point, uh, then of course the group must do it itself. The key thing being to avoid rivalry. You can't have mm. you can't have good worship while people are, are bitching with each yeah. other as opposed yeah. as opposed to stitching with each other. Um, <laughs> nice, nicely done, <laughs> um, James. I don't know if. It, I don't know if I've just been converted to Catholicism or if you've just converted to Anabaptism, but either way, I just want to say amen to this good news. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, you would uh, you would very you would find very few uh, Catholic communities where where the people are bold enough 
not to depend on the bishop for that. Though in some places in the high, you know, high mountains in the, the Andes and things like that, where they haven't had a priest for a long time, they will say to the community will say to the sister, one of the, the nuns, you 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 uh, celebrate, and so the nun does. Mm. Um, and uh, you know that's uh, Pope Francis was talking constantly about how you've got to declericalize the church, but declericalizing the church uh, passes through recognizing that what the church has is not a crisis of vocations, but a crisis of understanding of the sacrament, a crisis of discernment amongst those who actually have the sacrament of orders. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that Pope Francis is going to make that better. But yeah, um, yes, I, I think that's right. I think that, that uh, when everything works well, you have a bishop who appoints someone who's who who is sensible, and, and the fact that the bishop has appointed them means that there isn't rivalry about it. But if that isn't possible, then at all costs avoid rivalry, try to choose somebody who doesn't cause rivalry, and therefore makes the worship possible. But that's the... The, the enemy of worship is rivalry. <laughs> hmm. All right, half time. This is when we open up the virtual guitar case pass around the virtual collection plate. If you like what we're doing here, think about throwing some money in. We do this because we love it, but we also love our families. The hours we put into this podcast are hours we owe to them. They freed us up to do this work. Help us give something back. Throw in a 20, throw in a dollar, it's all good. Just click on the Patreon link. You can make a one-time donation or you can commit to something regular. Even something small but regular makes a big difference. Regular contributions mean a regular gig for this artist and this preacher. It lets us chase the dream and not the dollar. Enough said. Back to the reason you're here and we're here today. Alana, why don't you go ahead with your next question? Okay, so while I agree with my progressive friends uh, about Mr. Donald Trump, <laughs> um, you know, being kleptocratic, opportunistic, misogynist, and then we can just, you know, continue on. Um, Jung has, has this way of uh, describing the male archetypes and he sort of, Donald Trump sort of epitomizes this disintegrated king or whatever um i it's still there there's something about uh the way in which we're we're looking at this that kind of it it, it can be a little bit um uh, there's a conflict of interest here because on the one hand uh we're able to say all of this but then we also have to have this expectation that the president the commander in chief, you know, could bring about a kingdom of justice and peace, but is still the commander in chief of the most powerful, you know, military the world's ever known. Yeah. And so we've got this sort of, uh, there's a tension here. Um, part of the problem is that I think because he's affiliated so openly um, with the Christian right or with the evangelicals who backed him up. There is this sense that he aligned himself with uh, the name of Jesus, and so so here we have this point where 
where there's a lot of people who are saying, no, 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 you don't get to align. Uh, but then the same people are often expecting this presidential person to bring about the reign of Christ somehow. And even if he was like, uh, you know, had his archetypes hopping <laughs> in a good way and not a disintegrated way, how could he do that um, in in when when he's also in charge of all the nuclear key like codes and ha like how does that not contradict this expectation and how are we to to show up with this expectation of of political change and how do we be wise about it that's i maybe it, there's a number of questions there but it's just i'm sensing like a, a contradiction in our expectations of this position <laughs> Are you are you a Canadian or uh, or American yourself? We're both Canadian, but we're so the whole world is so deeply affected by this, and oh yeah, the circles that Marcus and I run in are deeply influenced by American politics. Well, of course, yeah. So we it's this you know it's this this question of uh, the circles that we run in. We're coming up against this 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 contradiction that I'm speaking of. We expect the president to bring about the reign of Christ or something. Yes. But how in the world is he, you know, supposed to do this when he's such an intense, immense military power? Yeah. Well, uh, um, a Jesuit friend of mine in the United States once told me, uh, and the, these were his words, he said, we, we our, our, our presidential elections, we're not electing a president, we're electing a messiah in chief. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's usually the way um, people are look, looking for qualities of someone who has to be the nation's chief mourner, chief peace builder, chief uh, celebrant, chief just about, you know, every one of those uh, things. And when you had someone who was really, really good at it, like Obama, of course, they didn't like him because he was the wrong colored um <laughs> Messiah in, in chief, and I think I think that the good the, <laughs> yeah. the, the good thing about uh, about Trump in this sense is that he's a he is whether deliberately or not a complete iconoclast. I don't think that anybody will be able to take the presidency in the same way. Anybody who's lived through this will will not be able to treat the U.S. presidency ever again in the same way. Hmm. Whatever the uh, outcome. I mean, I, whether either um, Trump and the Republicans manage to institutionalize themselves into some form of non-constitutional government, or whether they have a comeuppance at the hand of either the electorate or the um, uh, the justice system. But whichever way that goes, I don't think that it will ever be able to be looked at uh, the same way again. So maybe it's good for us to remember that we oughtn't to be looking for a messiah in chief. Um, mm. I mean, it's much more comforting when somebody like Obama is is there, and Obama did a considerably better job than any of his immediate predecessors. But on the other hand, Obama too was the head of the uh, largest military outfit and had drone strikes and all of that. So it, you know, it's it's the, the principal. The, he was in charge of the principalities and powers in the. In, in the language to which you're you're accustomed, um, yeah, mm -hmm. and and maybe there is no such thing as a decent representative of the principalities and and powers. Um, so uh, I'm I'm in a sense quite glad 
when it's impossible to take seriously the kind of religious pretensions of nationhood and so on and so forth. Um, mm. I'm aware that it's extremely painful. I mean, I'm as a as a Brit, uh, my country uh, is, as you know, undergoing national suicide at the hands of Brexit. Yeah. Um, and it's a very, very painful thing to lose to lose one's country and to realise how utterly wedded others are to a vision of the country that you know. I'd I'd love to think that it might work out for the best, but certainly nothing like the short or medium term can I imagine it working out for the best. Mm. So, yeah. So I think that learning to desacralize our political institutions is not a bad is not a bad thing and learning to detect where we have secretly idolatrized rather than facing up to the violence and the dangerousness of all our so-called structures of goodness um, i think that that's that's important it's important in the church and it's important in the state as well so uh i've thought uh, a lot about the story of people of color in america I've, I've thought a lot about our story here in Canada with our First Nations people and what they experienced, just genocidal proportions what yeah. they have gone through. Um, I've thought a lot about the suffering of the LGBTQ community around the world and how much unanimity <laughs> many Christians have experienced through being against yeah. the gay community together. Um and I'm a woman, so I know what it feels like to hashtag me too. I have experienced what it feels like to be overlooked, not taken seriously, or seen as valid, uh, you know, in workplaces, etc. Yeah. Um, I once sat with an Ojibwe elder, Jerry. His name was, um, he was a residential school survivor. And he told me, um, they spoke, he's speaking of the sisters, um, at his residential school. They spoke of their Jesus. And this is a direct quote. He told me his whole story, and I played songs for him. We sat by a lake called Cooking Lake. Um, he's since passed away last year, but um, this is what he told me, and I wrote it down so I could remember it. They spoke of their Jesus and of forgiveness. But what they didn't realize is that they were making us into Jesus. They were the ones who hadn't accepted him because they hadn't accepted us. And they were telling us to accept him. Why did we need to accept him when we were already put in his position? I will always know what it feels like to forgive unforgivable things. So, James, can you, it's a, it's a kind of hard question, maybe impossible to answer, but can you ever picture a time when the victim will not have to be the one to have the higher consciousness capable <laughs> of forgiving unforgivable things? Mm. Not at all easily, because the only... The only story that I know is of how the creation is brought into being through the victim who forgives. Hmm. So that's where creation comes from. 
Hmm. Um, and I think that your 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 elder, that's a very very beautiful uh, account, because it's when forgiveness is not a resentful thing or a reactive thing, but is the shape of what it looks like actually to be sharing in the creation, the bringing into being. That that that's that's when you've got the real thing. But that's always only really going to be done from the victim. Because every other thing that looks like creation is battening, is some form or other of battening down the hatches or keeping order. Hmm. So yes, I'm sorry. That's not a very um, that's not a very uh, <laughs> re- what's the word uh, concrete picture. But I think that I think that that's the way that the thing goes. Hmm. So I guess I'll just tack one more question onto that. Then, is it the work of is it the work of imagination or poetry or arts or whatever to somehow open the minds of people who don't experience victimhood to somehow experience it i wonder yeah how does a person who doesn't have to experience that experience it so that like it's is there a way for someone who is not necessarily a victim to experience the victim, the place of the victim. To experience being put into shame. I, I wonder who hasn't got some access to that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's when we find ourselves fighting hard against our own hidden shame by putting other people into places hmm. that we really hmm. see the trouble. It's usually when you have some access to to where you have been, even if it's very minor hmm. in you know on the grand scale of things, that you have uh, enough empathy to see what you might be doing with another person and to refuse to put them into the place of of shame. Hmm. But that involves people who are not in flight from themselves. And of course that's that's the that's the really difficult one. <laughs> hmm. Well, it does seem to me that when I read the accounts of the disciples who are helping us understand the story of the victim by by telling the story of Jesus and, and recording it for us, that they are a, a wonderful example of, I forget the words you just used to put, to put it, to, to stand, to tell, to tell the story from a place not in not they, they not in flight from themselves right you know they they speak of their complicity but it took them time to get there yeah they all ran away yes uh, yes our principal witnesses are a betrayer and a persecutor <laughs> <laughs> yes wow I, I i have one more question and then uh and then i'm going to ask alana to uh to sing you a song james but before I, before we get to that, I so I uh, I brought my books into uh, a little Christian bookstore in Winnipeg uh, last week. At first, uh, in the hopes of putting them in on consignment. At first, the conversation was going swimmingly, and uh, and then uh, the uh, the owner of the store, uh, a line on the back of the book, kind of jumped out at him about arriving at a new place in relation to queer folk and Muslims and refugees and women and people who are my other. And uh, he says to me, uh, well, how does that, how does that jive with what Jesus tells us about being the son, being the, 
no one can approach the father but through the son and and i kind of improvised you know an answer that he he certainly wasn't satisfied with and and i'm not sure i was satisfied with it either and i and i i think yeah there there is in that question it's a question like uh there's a question there about the distinctive gift of jesus and holding that in a in a healthy plurality um how would how would you how do you think about uh, those words of Jesus in terms of saying no one approaches the Father but through me, which which can uh, be taken in a in a very kind of box closing sort of a way? Yeah, I mean I think that there's a difference between uniqueness and specificity, and hmm. we're inclined to to muddle the two, and in fact. I think that the uniqueness of Jesus and his self-giving is that it's self-effacing and therefore mm. always undoing every sort of specificity. Mm. It's one of the reasons why I think that in, when there's the, the discussion about the, the sin that cannot be forgiven, he says, you can sin against the Father, no problem. Sin against the Son, no problem. It's the sin against the Spirit that can't be forgiven. In other words, that's the, it's the dynamic that's at work. If you, mm. you get in the way of that, which is essentially the self-giving and forgiveness, the self the self-effacement. That's you know, if you, if you really are going to oppose that, saying no, actually we must be, we must create victims, we must not forgive, we must. If you're going to go down that line, then yes, then you can commit <laughs> an, uh, an unforgivable sin. You get locked into into that. But um, you know, blasphemy against the Father, blasphemy against the name of Jesus. Jesus is happy with that. And happy is the wrong word. He's um, he's okay. That, that, that doesn't matter. He's not there in order to make people fix on his specificity. He's there hmm. to set free the dynamic that is even greater than his specificity. But that's so that we are able to enter into his way, which is the way, the unique way. So I think that um, how we find ourselves able to let go of specificity in order to discover the uniqueness, the self-effacing, self-giving, the, that, you know, the canotic passage in, uh, in Philip, the famous Philippians, have this mind in you which was in Christ, uh, though he was, you know, well, you know, the, you know the line I mean, though he was not, uh, though he was equal with God, he didn't count himself. Mm, 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 mm. Because that's, mm. that is the way, um, and that's the way we're invited to uh, go into, but the whole point of it is that it doesn't draw attention to itself. In other words, it's not concerned with its own specificity, and it seems to me that that's that's part of how I, I would have answered your um, your bookstore interlocutor, saying yes, mm-hmm. actually you make Jesus much less unique if you turn him into a god rather than allow him to be God. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Oh, James, I my heart is lifted. Uh, my mind is opened and, uh, I know, uh, yeah, we, we talked earlier about authority <laughs> and, uh, I, I, we, we won't call you father James, but certainly a very helpful brother <laughs> and, and one whom we recognize and, and rejoice with. Um, I, as we, as we draw this conversation to a close, uh, I would like to ask my, uh, my sister to offer a gift, um, that just seems uh 
she, she I mean, Alana has so much music that that lifts my heart also. But there's this there's one in particular that I find connects just so so beautifully with the work you've been doing. Uh, it's a song about the father's heart has been revealed, and uh, so I've I've asked her to have her her guitar on hand, and I'm gonna ask her to to share that, and then uh, and then we have a a kind of blessing that we'd like to share, and and then we'll we'll draw this conversation to a close. Um, maybe just before that, is there, uh, in terms of folks listening uh, that are discovering you for the first time uh, and want to get with more of what you have to offer, um, what are the the digital addresses we should uh, encourage them towards? Um, well, www.jamesallison.co.uk is um, a place where I put up my texts and where my webmaster collects videos and i hope we'll be able to put a link to this uh this podcast when you when you have it mm. and uh also there is my course jesus the forgiving victim which is my uh, adult introduction to the christian faith or faith now i have to say that differently uh introduction to christian faith for adults because uh adult introduction when I first <laughs> in, the, uh, in the united states it was assumed that it meant as it were um Adult, as in erotic, uh, whereas oh, <laughs> so, so, no, no, it's not, for adults, it's not an adult introduction. It's an introduction for adults. So anyhow, I've got that right. But the the website for that is uh, www.forgivingvictim.com, and there are the courses available as books and uh, DVDs and online. So those who pursue who pursue it can find stuff there. Excellent. Uh, you ready to go, Alana? Yeah, I yeah I am. I just thought I would uh, mention a, a, about this song. It's called "The Heart of God," and it was basically how it came about. Is I had never written an Easter Sunday song. Lots of Lenty songs and Good Friday, and being the artist, it's kind of easier to go in those, <laughs> you know, more melancholy directions, and and a lot more difficult to write an authentic. song celebration I guess and part of it was James that uh I didn't know what I was celebrating uh connected to to Easter really at all most of my life and the sacred heart really um I I was introduced to the sacred heart before Gerard and to me it was a nice setup for him his work because it suddenly showed me uh, that Jesus was revealing something about the Father rather than, rather than protecting me from the Father. So I just thought I would set that up. And then the the chorus is just simply hallelujah, which, you know, in the liturgical tradition we withhold from singing that during Lent. And, um, I, and it's meaningful to me because I didn't for years know why I was singing hallelujah on Easter Sunday at all. So, so that's the context for this. I hope you can hear it. Um, but we'll we'll just try it here. The heart of God has been revealed. The heart of God has been revealed to bring love, not hate. Pour out, 
not dominate the heart of God has been revealed the heart of God has been Heart of God has been revealed to forgive, not blame, make whole, not shame. The heart of God has been Yes, thank you. Yes, I like that very much. Before we let you go, James, um, we'd like to read you a blessing, if that's all right. Please do. All right. James Allison, in you and through you. A story of pain and exclusion. Has become a witness to grace and hospitality. May you be blessed. As a Christ bearer. And cross bearer with the joy not only of being wrong, but the joy of the creative effervescence of God, setting things to rights, going higher up and deeper in, higher up and deeper in. God bless you, James Allison, servant of the Servant King. Amen. Amen. And God bless you, Marcus and Alana. Thank you very much indeed. This has just been such a treat. Thanks so much. of God has been revealed The heart of God has been revealed To bring love, not hate Pour out, not dominate The heart of God has been of God has been revealed The heart of God has been revealed To forgive not blame To make whole not shame The heart of God has been
just be We are the ferment. You are too. Thanks for listening. Until next time, breathe consciously and with love. Eat consciously and with love. Tend the creation. Attend the divine. And name the real consciously and with love. Peace and all good. <laughs>